like me and my lift? Please tell me by writing a short review of the show in iTunes and leaving me some gold stars. It helps others to find their way here too. I like gold stars. Can I have lots? Pretty please? Leave me stars and reviews at itunes.victoriaslift.com Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com Do you like to listen? Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hello, this is Daniel Foytek, and welcome to Season 2, Episode number 10 of The Lift. Before we get started today, a quick thank you to our new Patreon supporters. Your support helps keep the show coming. New support since our last show came from... Ashley McConkie, Ethan Woodman, and Jake and Sam LeBas edited their pledge to get us to our goal, our second goal of $250 a month, and we are working our way towards the third important goal. That's the one that allows us to pay the writers, the artists, and the composers that do all the work to make the show possible. A lot of time and love goes into making the show, and your support lets us know that you appreciate the effort. For a full list of all supporters, stay tuned at the end of the show or visit victoriaslift.com forward slash support. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash victoriaslift. If you support the show, we have fun rewards like bookmarks, an early release of our episodes, an exclusive Patreon feed, which does not include this that you're listening to right now. And at the $5 a month and above level, you get bonus audio and more. A special hello to Shelly Perrin and Millicent Turk. Also, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate the show five stars and write nice reviews on iTunes. For those rare few who wrote not-so-nice reviews, well, Victoria has a special place in her building just for you. Today, we're taking a trip back to the basement with a great story by Scarlett R. Algy. So, without further delay, we'll let Scarlett say hello and then we'll let Victoria take us for a ride. Hi, this is Scarlet R. Algy, and I'm the writer for today's episode of The Lift, Brimstone. If you enjoy the story, you can find more of my work at scarletralgy.wordpress.com. Find more episodes of The Lift at victoriaslift.com I have lost so much My name is Victoria I am bound to this place charged with guiding those who must choose Don't be afraid I can never again be the little girl I was I have my music box and a library lost, but I sometimes feel very alone. Won't you join me? It's time for your ride on the lift. <laughs> Don't be afraid.
Susan Coffey's shopping cart has a squeaky wheel. She navigates quickly down the supermarket aisle. Walking slowly, she's found, just makes the noise worse, and stops in front of a collection of brownie mixes. Turtle, mint chocolate chip, triple chocolate chunk. After a moment, she takes one of each. Yesterday, she performed a funeral. Tonight, she has to finish writing a sermon, and it's already 8 p.m. on a Saturday. She deserves a treat. Really was a lovely service. Susan pauses, hand hovering over a bright red box of black forest brownie mix, wondering if a layer of cherry filling is too decadent for this time of night. The voice is coming from the next aisle. It's female, elderly, and no one she recognizes from her congregation. Then a second woman speaks. Oh, yes. Yes, it was. I thought Felicia's granddaughter gave a lovely eulogy. Although, Felicia, the woman buried yesterday. Susan steps back from the displayed mixes and shoves her hands into the pockets of her jeans, head cocked, listening. She's always hated being talked about. I thought the pine casket looked a little bit out of place for someone of her standing, the second woman continues. Don't get me wrong. I understand that funerals are expensive, and families want to save money for other things. It just looks a little peculiar. Disrespectful, you mean. For a woman, the first agrees. At least they don't seem to be getting closer. Susan isn't in a mood to socialize. She's thinking of the two diamond rings that had been on Felicia Perry's gnarled ancient fingers. It's become a popular thing, though, especially since that coffee girl came back here as a pastor. I hear she's a big believer in... Susan doesn't want to hear what she's a big believer in. She has things to do. The funeral was yesterday, and it's rained once tonight already. The ground should still be soft. She turns her shopping cart around and squeaks away. Susan drops the last scoop of dirt back into place and stands up. Rain patters into her upturned face. But in this corner, where the cemetery adjoins the church... There's no light, no traffic, no street lights, certainly no moon and stars, just the odd flicker of lightning in the east and the accompanying mutters of thunder. That's okay. She's gotten good at working in the dark. She leans on her shovel for a moment, then bends to pick up the crowbar she'd used earlier. Felicia Perry's two diamond rings rub against each other in her pocket. And she knows no one will ever, ever think to miss them. Least of all, the old woman's family. They'll put a bouquet on the grave tomorrow and not even notice that the soil's been disturbed. Susan grins, resting the crowbar on her shoulder. The rings will be disposed of appropriately. 
they should help put a nice down payment on that red jaguar she's been admiring for the last three months. For now though, it's time to put away the tools, take off her heavy gloves, clean the mud from her boots and wash her jeans. She's sure there's something in her file of old sermons that can be suitably recycled for tomorrow morning, and she still has to make herself those brownies. She can't forget the brownies. Susan hoists her shovel, turns around, and stops dead. Inside the church, every light is on. Susan drops her shovel and stares at the building. What is this? Those lights weren't on 30 seconds ago. They weren't. She'd have seen them. With the building at her back, they'd have been bright enough to work by. Her heart wallops her sternum. She'd have seen them. Which means someone's in there. Someone's seen her. Someone has seen her. Despite the fact that it's after midnight and pitch black and raining, and now they're inside the church watching her, waiting for her, laughing at her, which means they'll have to be dealt with somehow. God damn it, she doesn't need this. Susan tightens her grip on the crowbar and starts for the nearest door. Susan opens the side door, steps into the back of the sanctuary, and stares. Everything's changed. The pulpit is gone. So are the pews and the stained glass windows. The cherry hardwood floor, dulled with age, is now gleaming parquet. The walls are immaculately papered. An old-fashioned cage-style elevator stands in place of the stairs to the organ loft, flanked by two tall plants in polished brass urns, their leaves gently swaying as though someone's just brushed by. There are no lights that Susan can see, but everything gleams under a soft ambience. It looks like a photograph come to life, one of the pictures of a chic apartment building in the 1890s New York that Susan remembers from her grandmother's tattered, faded Time Life books. Seeing that opulence had made her want it, even as a child, and now she's face to face with it. What is this? Susan raises her free hand to rub her eyes, momentarily forgetting the soil on her work gloves. Damn it! You shouldn't swear, Reverend. It's ever so impolite. What? Susan looks up, her vision blurred by grime. There's a little girl standing in the suddenly open door of the elevator, dressed like she's walked out of another century. Frilled purple dress with lace trim, ankle boots with buttons up the sides, blonde hair neatly parted and pulled into pigtails. Who are you? How did you get in here? And what's happened to my church? My name is Victoria, and I'm here, well... Because I'm supposed to be here. And so are you. The girl frowns slightly. And it's not really your church. But you've always liked having a hand in what's not yours, haven't you? What's that supposed to mean? It means put down the crossbar, Susan. May I call you Susan? It's not so stuffy as Reverend... Susan's hand opens of its own volition, and the crowbar clunks to the floor, scattering dirt across the shine. 
She yanks her gloves off and rubs her eyes until they stream, but nothing changes. Here's the swanky apartment lobby, the plants, the elevator, the girl. I'm not imagining you, am I? No. Victoria doesn't smile. I apologize for the dramatics, but I knew they'd get your attention. I have two very nice ladies here to see you, and you don't have much time. Susan gapes for a moment, then realization hits. The church committee. This girl is someone's great niece or granddaughter, and they've seen her outside. They know. They know. Look, she begins weakly. Look, if this is about what I was doing outside, just give me a chance to explain. You'll have it, but I'm not the one who wants the explanation. Victoria crosses the room and takes Susan's hand in a surprisingly firm grip and leads her into the elevator. The ornate doors hum shut, and Victoria studies a panel of shiny buttons, nine numbers for floors, and a single arrow pointing downward. Oh, Susan, you've run the gamut, haven't you? Theft, greed, narcissism, dishonesty, treachery. I could take you to every floor, but it's rude to keep people waiting. Down it is, I'm afraid. It's a good thing that the elevator ride is short. Victoria's silent, and Susan is baffled, then angry. This is a joke, isn't it? Never mind how the inside of the church looks, this is all some kind of prank to get the better of her. Well, she'll see about that when she looks these people in the face. No one laughs at Susan Coffey. Not anymore. Then the doors open. The scene has changed again. Now, Victoria leads Susan into a space that's all too familiar the cellar of her grandmother's house. Again, the room is lit from a source Susan can't pinpoint, but the light is cool and falls off sharply into darkness in the corners. Still, she knows the scuffed maple floor and the bundles of onions and garlic hanging from the beams overhead, the shelves full of dusty jars of vegetables packed in liquid, the constant faint musty smell, She knows the women. Dear God, the women. They're sitting on a backless bench against the wall, dressed in clothes she knows too well. One wrings her hands, and the other rubs her throat. Their wrinkled faces are set in grimaces of sorrow, but neither speaks or blinks or otherwise moves. Their stares are fixed and glassy. One is Felicia Perry. And the other is Susan's grandmother. She can almost, she realizes, see right through them. A scream rises in her throat and dies there, and her palms begin to sweat. Okay, what gives? Susan demands, unable to hide the shake in her voice. Who are these people, really? What kind of sick game is this? It's no game, Susan. The expression on Victoria's small face is deadly serious. You've come to a sort of breaking point. Your little grave-robbing escapade tonight is just part of it. Susan works saliva into her mouth. 
It's an effort. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't you? You've hurt a lot of people who trusted you. Victoria gestures at the women on the bench. I couldn't accommodate them all, but I brought these two. The first and the last. I thought you'd appreciate the significance. Here, let me jog your memory. Victoria walks over to the bench and picks up something Susan hadn't noticed. An old wooden box. She sets it down on the floor tenderly, a few feet from Susan, and opens the lid. A slow, tinny lullaby begins to play, and pale green light spills out of the box. An image forms in midair, rolling downward from near the ceiling, like a screen. It's grainy at first, then clear as a photograph, and then it's moving. There's Susan herself, ten years old, sitting on the porch steps of this very house while her mother brushes out her hair. Young Susan's black shoes are scuffed, her shirt sleeves rolled up to hide the threadbare spots. Her skirt is denim, patched in places with squares of brighter fabrics. The image flickers, and there she is, walking into the church behind her parents. A younger girl, sitting in the back of the church, points and laughs. Look, everybody, Susan's mom dressed her out of a rag bag. Watching the memory, Susan stands as rigid as her younger self had done, stricken at the explosive laughter that had broken out of everyone watching. She grits her teeth, her ears burning, and clenches her hands into fists. Being mocked in church had been bad enough, but her mother had made her wear the skirt to school the next day as well, and the girl who'd pointed, Clara, Susan remembers, her name was Clara, had invited everyone in the class to her birthday party. But Susan's not invited, because it's not a costume party and she dresses like a quilt. The entire class had erupted. Clara had sat down at her desk looking like the cat who got the canary. Susan stares at the image of her mortified self, frozen now, and blinks hard. She won't cry. She is not going to cry in front of this debacle. That was the beginning. Your family was poor, Victoria says. You knew that, and you were trying to deal with it. They loved you. They were doing their best, and you knew that, once, deep down, but being laughed at, even by the children who didn't know better, that you couldn't abide. And then, the picture blurs and shifts. When you were 14, your grandmother died. Susan should walk out. She knows this. She should run and never look back. But every effort she makes to move from the spot does nothing. Her body utterly fails to respond. She opens her mouth and nothing comes out. So she watches. This time the scene is the living room. If she were really in her grandmother's house right now, she could walk up the stairs and stand in this room. And here, just like 12 years ago, is her grandmother's open casket, propped against the seats of four mismatched dining chairs an old-fashioned wake, because her parents couldn't afford funeral home expenses. The room is dim, no lights are on, 
Only the light from the windows illuminates her grandmother's still face and the lanky form of 14-year-old Susan herself slouching into view. She stands over the casket, staring down. Then she takes a deep breath, reaches in, and pulls away with a strand of pearls in her hand, stuffing them hastily into her shirt. The pearls. You took the pearls and her wedding ring and let your mother think one of the guests had done it. Shut up, Susan thinks, but her lips still won't move. The scene hiccups, shifting to the next day. Susan getting out of her father's truck at school, waiting on the sidewalk until he's driven out of the parking lot and back up the street, then striking out across the grounds. You left school and hitchhiked to the next town so you could pawn the jewelry and no one would recognize you. For the first time, there's a hint of anger in Victoria's tone. Tell me, Susan, how much did you get for the pearls? Susan's face flames, but her tongue loosens. She mumbles, Fifteen dollars. Victoria frowns. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Just so they can hear. I said fifteen dollars! Susan screams, making her grandmother's shade flinch. They were worthless! Worthless! They were glass, and the stupid ring was only gold plate, and the guy at the pawn shop laughed in my face! They meant something to your grandmother. Victoria glances at her music box, and the tune changes, becomes a slow, winsome waltz. They were your grandfather's wedding present to her. Maybe the pearls weren't physically valuable, but he loved her. Doesn't that mean anything to you, Susan? No. Susan rubs her throat, unconsciously mirroring her grandmother. Screaming had hurt, and she'll need her voice in a few hours. Not anymore. If he'd loved her, then he should have done better. Nobody laughs at me. Poor thing. There's no doubt the two words are distinctly acid. You resented that so much, and you could have done better, as you put it. But you didn't, did you? That wasn't what you chose. The ghostly film hitches and gets moving again, this time with a solemn, hymn-like tune as its soundtrack. This was. There's no sound, this time, apart from the music. Susan, 19, just a few years back, sitting on the couch in her dorm's common room with a neglected history textbook on her lap and skinny knees poking out through gaps in her tatty handmade corduroys, the wall clock showing 3 a.m., Susan's attention fixed on the television, on the man with the slick hair and expensive suit and the urgent way he's speaking. She hadn't caught the sermon at the time, just the pitch at the end, the plea, the appeal to the audience's innate sense of generosity, and all of a sudden, something had clicked into place. I can do that, Susan remembers thinking. He's making money by talking people out of it. I can do that. Your parents were so proud when you decided to study theology. But they had no idea what your motives were, did they? Or how far you were willing to go. 
The scene now is Susan's first funeral, conducted only weeks after her graduation, herself in robe and collar, a tight close-up of her face as she says the things that strike her as appropriately comforting. But what the close-up doesn't show, what Susan herself remembers, is how her attention had been most focused on the deceased, namely her earrings and her necklace, and how that night, long after the burial had taken place and the mourners had gone home, Susan had taken up a shovel and a crowbar for the first time. You're fond of necklaces, Victoria observes. Earrings, tie pins, anything that's easy to remove. Susan can say nothing, though her throat burns with wanting to defend herself. She's always been careful, taking nothing unique or monogrammed or otherwise recognizable. They're dead, she wants to say. Dead! Buried with things they don't need by idiots who will never miss them. The ghoulish playback picks up speed. A burial, an exhumation. Burial, exhumation. Not every time, of course. Susan's never been stupid. But often enough that soon, to her surprise, even she's lost count. Has she really done this so many times? It's something to be proud of, she supposes. An achievement to have done so much and never been caught. The picture slows again and freezes. This time on a single frame of Susan just tonight. Levering Felicia Perry's coffin open. She tears her gaze away to look at the woman herself and spectral Felicia stops wringing her hands. Instead, she starts cackling. A second passes, and Susan's grandmother joins in, neither woman blinking or moving her lips, but somehow getting louder, louder. Stop laughing. It's a whisper as Susan's voice finally comes back. Stop laughing, she insists angrily. Stop laughing! The women fall reproachfully silent. The phantasmal movie fades into nothing. Victoria's music box begins to play a funeral march. Susan's not cold in the slightest, but she shivers. It isn't entirely too late, Reverend. Victoria steps forward and takes Susan's stiff hands. Not quite yet. You could still make amends somehow. Amends? Susan glowers at her. You think I need to make amends? Just for helping myself to something no one else would ever see again? I'm a preacher for God's sake. Look what I do for these people. I deserve to be rewarded. I deserve better than this. I've always deserved better. She laughs herself, finally, and it's bitter. (laughs) What do you think you're going to do? Send me to hell? There's no such thing. Well, I suppose I can't say. I haven't tried. Victoria lets Susan's hands go and moves away, her expression slipping from hopefulness to disappointment. 
to impassivity. Ladies, if you would be so kind. The two spectral women get to their feet jerkily, like puppets on strings. It's horrible to watch them come closer, and every bone in Susan's body is screaming at her to move, to run, but she's as fixed in place as a butterfly on a stick pin. They stand alongside her, one on either side, and lock hands around her and begin to dance. They start a high-stepping caper around Susan's frozen form. With every pass, they pick up speed, faster and faster, higher and higher, giggling with rictus grins, shedding flesh like vapor with every step, until Susan is being circled by two cackling diaphanous skeletons. No, she whispers. Beneath her feet, the floor is growing warm and beginning to smoke. No! She's sinking. No! Oh, God! She's sinking, and the heat is growing worse, and the class skeletons are whipping around her in a frenzy. Her boots are smoldering. No! They close in in a ring of fire and start to tear at her. No! No! Oh, God! Help me! No! The funeral dirge from Victoria's music box slows and stutters out. The screams abruptly stop, only the echoes of Susan's terrified cries still hanging in the air. One after the other, the two shades sink down into the floor and vanish in a show of bony, grasping hands until nothing's left at all but a scorched black circle on the worn old hardwood and a sulfurous wisp of smoke seeping out between two planks. Shaking her head sadly, Victoria closes her music box and picks it up. big thank you to all of you for listening to the show to all of you who take the time to rate and review the show in itunes and stitcher and every place else and to all of our patreon supporters without your generous contributions it would be nearly impossible to put this show together full show notes with credits links and artwork can be found at victoriaslift.com we make other podcasts you might enjoy check out the wickedlibrary.com and also ninthstory.com for links to other shows. If you're on social media, you can check us out on Facebook and also on Twitter. And if you'd like to make sure you don't miss future episodes of the show, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, lots of places. Today's episode of The Lift was brought to you by Aaron of the Alexandria Archives podcast, Aaron McCormick, Aaron Mosher, Aaron Vleck, Ada Terrill, 
Alyssa G, Angela Mabry, April Barber, Ashley McConkey, Ben Apperson, Brad Erickson, Brandon Jant, Brian Wainwright, Byron K. Veerling, Dennis Scott Jepson, Diane Student of the History Goes Bump podcast, Donna Seeley, Emily Sherman, Ethan Woodman, Hannah Woodford, Jennifer Clickenbeard, Jenny Sweeney, Jillian, John Grills of the Small Town Horror Podcast, Josh Wood, Julie Collins, Kelly Perkins, Kyle Walker, Lisa M. DeVol, Melinda Dupi, Patricia Harris, Paul Sading of the Subject Found Podcast, Pooh Lee, Sam and Jake Labah of the Just a Story Podcast, Scott Roche, Shelley Perrin, Sophia Rivera. Thank you all for making the lift possible. And my apologies for mispronouncing most of your names. Tweet, tweet! Are you a birdie? Do you like to Twitter and tweet? Come find us on Twitter at Victorious Lift. Tweet, tweet.